0: You might recall when the uh, Super Bowl came to Indianapolis. The, the uh, activity that surrounded it, the planning that went into it, the, the hotels and the restaurants that were built and invested in simply because the Super Bowl was coming to Indianapolis. You know, some of the hotels up near I 74, from what I understand, were built for the Super Bowl, and even the one that never got used. Um, uh, until just recently, and uh, you might remember that how downtown trans, uh, Indianapolis, especially the the strip between just north of of um, uh, Lucas Oil and and uh, between there and Bankers Life, how that was transformed, and you know sidewalks that had heat heaters above them and things like that, and people there had they had set up zip lines that people could ride from one part to the other there was there was music going and all of that and how crazy would it have been if you had had tickets to the Super Bowl and because of all of the commotion and because of all of the excitement and all the fun things to do out on the street you were missing the game I mean how crazy would that have been it all pointed to what was going on inside of Lucas Oil, but yet you were missing the game because you were too caught up in the peripheral excitement of what was going on there. That would have been crazy. So many significant things were happening when Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday because of the palm branches that were laid before him and waved or that, that what we marks his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a king who would soon be crucified. So many significant things were going on. It was the Passover feast. I understand that that Pastor Jeff with with our our young people is um, doing a sort of Passover with them this morning. Uh, out in the mod, and that's that's pretty special for them, but it was a it was a Passover feast in which the lamb was to be crucified at just the right time, just the right lamb, and yet the Passover lamb was entering into Jerusalem. Uh, it was It was uh, such a time of significance that it was so that it was the, the typical excitement of the crowd during that season. the population of Jerusalem swelled many times its normal size uh for the celebration of the Passover. But they were also ginned up over the excitement that Jesus was coming. You see, just days prior, just east, you know if you got Jerusalem and sorry, I don't have a map of this, but if you have Jerusalem and just east of there is the Kidron Valley, which Jeff uh, described this morning there where uh, a, a graveyard now lies and then you had the Mount of Olives and just on the other side of that is Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Just days earlier, Jesus had been in Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and prior... Uh, and after that, he made his way back up to the Sea of Galilee. A- and as pilgrims were coming down to Jerusalem for, to celebrate the Passover, on the east side of the Jordan, Jesus traveled with them. And he healed many people and he taught all along the way. And, and the crowd was exciting because they weren't just going for the Passover. They were coming with Jesus along the way. And as the crowd passed into Jerusalem, as it was customary for those who were going to be celebrating Passover, came out to the east side of Jerusalem and would welcome the crowd in, Jesus and his disciples duck out to Bethany again to be with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But there was an excitement that went ahead of them. John tells us that in him was life and the life was the light of men. He was about to shine his light in Jerusalem once again. And the one who can set us free, and when he does, we are free indeed, had come to bring freedom. But it seems like despite the, the understandable excitement... Others are all the more willing to reject Jesus as Savior and King, even with this most amazing miracle that he has performed lately of raising Lazarus from the dead. There are those that are determined to reject him. And and so we're going to learn from Matthew and Luke and John this morning just about what is going on on this special day of this triumphal entry. And we start with John 12. And we see. The hardness of heart. Of the religious leaders. Right off the bat. John 12 9 through 11 we read. When the, cra- when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And see, now now see this amazing statement. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. What an amazing contrast to the excitement over this miracle that had been performed. We continue reading in verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They heard from these pilgrims that had traveled with Jesus that he was coming. We read in Matthew 21, starting verse 1, Now in the day, and now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they being Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethphage, at, to the Mount of Olives, when Jesus then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And we see this is the culmination of prophecy of Israel's king coming to them seated. On a donkey. Read this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, "Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. It's like they're saying, "Jesus, this dust is not good enough for for the feet of the donkey that you're riding to touch. Here, let me put my cloak between your donkey and this dust." It's a a show of honor. It's a show of celebration. It says, and the crowds went before him and that, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna meaning Lord, save us. But we'll see that they had a different understanding of what Jesus had come to save them from. Luke describes the scene as Jesus makes his way down across the Kidron Valley. In Luke 19, verse 37, we read, As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now understand when it says the whole multitude of his disciples, because of the works that they had seen, throughout the the Gospels we see multitudes and Jesus' disciples and then we talk about the 12 disciples. It's not... this is the uh, lower level commitment of the multitude that's excited about what Jesus has done recently. And sadly, they will soon cry out, crucify him. And we see the Pharisees wear their heart right on their sleeve. on verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There was a lot to be generally excited about there on that day. But it paled to what was truly triumphant about that moment. See, according to Daniel, verse chapter 9, Israel's Messiah was being presented on the very day That had been predicted some 500 years earlier. But the one who would be presented would also be rejected. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says Jesus may well have had in mind the significant prophecy of Daniel concerning the time of Messiah's coming. And that he had arrived in Jerusalem at the very time predicted by Daniel over 500 years previously. This event marked the official presentation of Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel as the rightful son of David. As I said, Daniel also predicted that Jesus would be rejected. And also that upon his rejection soon after, and we find that this happened in A.D. 70, Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. This realization led Jesus to grieve at the gravity of the moment. We read in verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's saying, Jerusalem, especially you should have known. And he weeps, as I mentioned, that for what Daniel had foretold, the destruction of Jerusalem following the rejection of their king. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation that day. Matthew 21 follows in verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 16 tells us his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. But John also shares the other side of this mixed review that was the, the reception of this superstar that while it says in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. But then we see the other side of this. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing, they say to each other. Look, the world has gone after him. Oh, if only that had been true. If only that had been true. I want you to see here this morning, Jesus' triumphal entry is so tragic because it was a festival of felons who failed to find their freedom in Christ. A festival of felons. And this qualifies, all of us qualify for this. Because all of us, in what we do think or say, have, have transgressed, have sinned against God's perfect moral law. I heard D.A. Carson say something yesterday. He said, no matter what our sin is, no matter how grievous it is to us or to somebody else, the, most, the, the person that it offends the most is God. And we, along with every single person at this moment, are are fugitives from God's wrath, from God's justice. And we remain fugitives if we do not receive Christ for who he is, the Savior who died and rose again for us, that we might be set free. You'll see in the movie tonight, uh, uh, John Bunyan's *Pilgrim's Progress that, that a town that a that, uh, Christian goes into, this pilgrim goes into, is called Vanity Fair. And it's a town that is known for perpetual celebration of all things that are vain, all things that are worthless. Okay? So in recognition of that, what did we do in the Western world? We, wrote a, we created a magazine called Vanity Fair that can celebrate the perpetual celebration of worthless things. That's what humanity is more interested in. But first, I want you to see in Matthew 21 that he challenges us to avoid the tragedy of settling. Avoid the tragedy of settling. I've told you before, one of my... Um, commercials I really appreciated was this commercial about this family and they were obviously pioneers they were settlers in the old west and you know they're dressed in settlers clothes and they're playing with you know uh, old you know uh, corn husk dolls and things like that and they're saying daddy why can't we have direct TV and and the the father says well that's because we're settlers we settle we settle for cable you know such a great play on words and things. And as funny as that is, we need to be careful that we're not settlers. See, the crowd is doing something that happens very often in American Christian culture. They are settling for lip service, and it is a tragedy. We must avoid the tragedy of settling for lip service to God. They're calling out, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, the rightful one to sit on David's throne Hosanna means save us, we pray. And and this is coming from Psalm 118.25 that predicted that this is what um, Israel's Savior would be called out for. But But the parallel to this in verse 25 of Psalm 118 is save us, give us success. Give us success. This crowd soon would be calling out, crucify him. Crucify him. You see, they did not see it possible that they would get the political salvation that they wanted, that they would get the financial salvation that they wanted, that they would get the comfort in life that they wanted by the bloodied, beaten, whipped Jesus that would be standing before them. So they're looking at him saying, I don't think he's going to give us the salvation we want. Get rid of it. Crucify him. And and what they gave on this day was just lip service because they thought they wanted what Jesus had to give. But what he had to give wasn't what they wanted. So they wanted him to be gotten rid of. Secondly, avoid the tragedy of settling for a half-gospel. Gospel. Notice when he entered Jerusalem, and they're asked, who is this? And it says, he's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They're right that he came from Nazareth. They're right, his name is Jesus, which means Savior. But he's the prophet. And this is significant. This is the prophet that Moses said, "Well, after me will come a prophet greater than I back in Deuteronomy 18. But, but they were not looking for or had in mind a sacrificed Savior, a sacrificed prophet who is actually the God-man. That was a little bit too much for their half-gospel. Something that I, we went to um, a, a conference this past week, um, Kelly and I and Jeff and Shelly, it's the Small Town Pastors Conference. And it's a just a, one of the most encouraging co- conferences that I'm a part of. We'd love for uh, any of you that would like to go with us next April to, to join us. Um, but Ed Stetzer was speaking there. He, he is a man who has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the church in America, in small-town America, in, um, around the world. And he, he's been speaking recently to this idea that we have a rise in our country of the nuns. Now, this isn't nuns like the ladies walking around with the funny hats on their head, okay? The nuns are N-O-N-E-S. So if they were, if they were answering a census or a, a, a survey and it said, uh, what religion are you, they would mark none. And it's been rising exponentially in our country. And, and so the word has been, oh, America no longer a Christian nation, the rise of the no religion The nuns. But yet, attendance in evangelical churches has stayed relatively the same for the last 30 years. And and, um, what is being seen is that you, you basically have three groups of people that call themselves Christians, okay? You have the nominals. The nominals would be in name only. If they're answering the survey, they say, oh, I'm Christian. I name myself Christian, but it makes no difference whatsoever, okay? Then you have the, um, sometimes I call them the priesters, okay? They're at church on Christmas and Easter, okay? They're, they're, if they said, oh, do you go to church? Yeah, I go to that church over there, and they mean I go about four times a year. That's, that's where, where I affiliate myself with. And then you have what's biblical, convictional Christians, Christians that the Holy Spirit is indwelling them and he's he 's causing them to work live according to convictions, have a relationship with God through Christ, or at least they have Christian convictions that they 're trying to live by and, and so what the what we are seeing today is the reason why the none group the no religion is growing is because the nominal group is shrinking and they 're now feeling more comfortable. Actually telling the truth and saying i 'm a nun i don 't have any religion i it, it. so in reality it's kind of um, more healthy in some ways. people are knowing themselves for who they are, but this is kind of in somewhat of an answer to the phenomenon of you know how people used to go off to college and sadly so many would walk away from their faith, they would walk away from being involved with the church but then they would get married and they would have kids and they would start to say, you know what I want to get my kids in church I'm embarrassed and s- sometimes God would use that embarrassment to get them exposed to the gospel and they would have start a real relationship with the Lord and it would change a family but now we've moved into a culture where they're comfortable saying eh, we don't need that Phenomenals are fine becoming nuns. But there's another phenomenon that's going on, and that's this. It used to be that, you know, you can see that our culture is being more and more polarized, right? So when it comes to issues like homosexual marriage, abortion, uh, gender issues, things like that, the, the gap between the two sides is becoming larger and larger, well, back in the 1990s, over here you would have the nominal Christians, you would have the sometime church-going Christians and the convictional Christians over here saying, uh, we stand with what the Bible says. And you'd have the, the non- unbeliever on this side. But what has happened in the last 30 years as we have become more and more polarized is that over here you have the unbelievers and the nominal Christians and the sometime church-going Christians. And on the other side of the divide is the conviction-based Christians and and most of those biblical Christians. That is what has changed in our culture. That is why Oftentimes if you share something on your Facebook or say something on your Facebook about biblical marriage or uh, about homosexuality or something like that, you will have some of your quote-unquote Christian friends or quote-unquote Christian family members saying, you know what, it's Christians like you that give the rest of us a bad name. That is totally unique in our culture. The Christians are finding their home here. It's why I have a family member that can tell me, yeah, I believe homosexuality is wrong. But I'm still going to put on a wedding for my homosexual foster daughter and her girlfriend in my backyard and and I get called I, I don't for some reason she called me a legalistic Baptist I'm not sure where that comes from but This is what Ed Stetzer said in an article in the USA Today. Christianity isn't dying and no research says it is. The statistics about Christians in America are simply starting to show a clearer picture of what American Christianity is becoming. Less nominal, more defined, and more outside of the mainstream of American culture. For example, example, the cultural cost of calling yourself Christian is starting to outweigh the cultural benefit. So those who do not identify as quote-unquote Christian according to their convictions are starting to identify as nuns because it is more culturally savvy. When he shared this, I was like, that is what's going on. Never before today have there been so many theologians or Christian bloggers chiming in saying, you know, I've just decided love is love. Who am I to tell two people of the same sex that love each other that that's wrong? People calling themselves Christians, we've never seen that in our culture before, but that's what's happening. I will tell you, you watch Pilgrim's Progress tonight with that understanding, you will totally identify with John Bunyan as he wrote that book. Because he sat in jail writing that book, imprisoned by Christians who were telling him to knock it off. Just like between Jesus' triumphal entry people calling hosanna and the same people calling crucifying him settling for lip service and a half gospel is is showing to mean no relationship with god whatsoever secondly we see luke 19 challenges us to avoid the tragedy of wasting now <clears throat> i know that there's some some things in our households that it's like a cardinal sin to waste what does your toothpaste tube look like before you actually throw it away, right? Like, I take mine, I don't know what it is, and I, like, crease it against the vanity corner, and then you sit there and you, you'll, like, set your toothbrush in a spot so that you can get both thumbs against the back of the, the spout of the toothpaste and, like, squeeze it out, and, and it's, like, scruff it off onto the brush. You're like, now I can throw it away, right? We don't want to be wasteful. Well, something that's even just obviously exponentially worse here is we need to avoid the tragedy of wasting the chance to honor your creator. Jesus tells them. When they say, rebuke your disciples, he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know, there's been a a disservice done to Western Christians. And Ed Stetzer mentioned this, and, and I think it's, it's, it's true in many ways. He said, if we, if we build large rooms that look like theaters and bring people in there to have church, why would we be surprised when they come and behave like moviegoers? Sit down. When the lights go down, get quiet. When the lights come back up, go home and get up and go home. <clears throat> and it is sad in American Christianity that if the seats aren't comfortable enough, if the temperature isn't just right in the room, and if the worship team just isn't hitting on all cylinders that morning, that a person can be like, you know what? Mood wasn't right. Sorry. Can't do it. Just can't enter in. I don't know what it is about that church. Better look somewhere else. that is not a problem with that church. I appreciated uh, some I've shared this with you before about a, a church that had large stones outside of its front door and engraved in them it said, "If you don't, they will. If you don't worship God, the very stones would cry out, don't av- avoid the tragedy of wasting. The chance to honor your creator. That's what was going on here. And also avoid the tragedy of wasting the call to embrace the gospel. This is another thing that we have done a disservice of in, in Western Christianity. Of, of the gospel being so present and, and treating people as if, you know what, if it's just not right for you right now, it's okay. You know, maybe sometime, how many times do we see Jesus saying, you know what, because you think you see, because you say I'm not blind, you're blind. He says here to Jerusalem, now uh, would that you, even you, or especially you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We have painted this picture in American Christianity that is different than the biblical relationship between God and man. The biblical relationship between God and man is that God is sovereign. He reigns over all. And man is morally responsible to recognize that. American Christianity has flipped that. I've shared this with you before. That man is sovereign. Man reigns over all. And God is morally responsible to live and to act according to how man needs him to be. Expects him to be. This is what's going on when people say, how could that happen? Where was God? Why didn't God do something? Because he's morally responsible to do something. And we treat man like he's sovereign. You know, God would never trample on your sovereign free will and impose himself on you. He stands there like a waiter with a towel over his arm saying, how may I serve you? That is strictly American Christianity. God is sovereign. He reigns over all. And man is morally responsible to respond to God in the way that he deserves. And we see it over and over again in Scripture where God says, you know, time's up. I'm not opening your eyes anymore. Enjoy your blindness. Enjoy your deafness. Enjoy your hardened heart. It's a tragedy to waste the call to embrace the gospel. Did you know that uh, lottery winners are more likely to declare bankruptcy than the average American? 70% of lottery winners will be bankrupt within three to five years. It's because, like, you know, once we realize the money is in the account, we just think it's unending. And we should be constantly... Holding the gospel out before our friends and our families and I try to explain the gospel to you every Sunday That is something that I try to do But we have this tendency in American Christianity to say oh the gospel's always there And waste it And waste the call to repent to Say Lord Forgive me for coming to you thinking that I can be good enough. It's only because of who Jesus is and what he has done that I can have a relationship with you, and that is what I need. And to remind ourselves of that on a daily basis. Dwayne Litfin is the, the former president of Wheaton College. He spoke at the conference that we were at as well. He made a mention of something that really impacted me. He said, we tend to spend or waste a lot of different things. But, but the three primary things that, that we tend to spend are money, time, and energy, or strength. He said, but, but really, money doesn't really fit with those two others because money is like, it's just an object, right? It's just an avenue. It's just a way of getting other things. Time and energy is something that is connected to us. I don't know about you, but um, my beard wasn't always white in spots. I'm running out of time, whether I like it or not. He said, you could have all the money in the world. You could figure out a way to be uh, independently wealthy. But you can't stop running out of time or running out of strength. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your strength on other things, on things that don't last. But yet, what's awesome about walking in a relationship with God is we can walk through every aspect of life. We can walk through fishing. We can walk through uh, dinner. We can walk through a family movie night with God, in relationship with God. We, we can enter into, uh, we can use a relationship that we have to simply give God the opportunity to share himself with somebody and say, hey, I just wanted to make sure that you knew you're invited to Easter. little map on the back. 85% of people say, I would go to church if somebody would take me. Maybe that's something to think about. I'll pick you up. Lastly, we see the tragedy of missing out. The difference between wasting and missing out, I figure, is wasting something is having something special at your disposal but not knowing or utilizing it. Yet missing, missing out is having the opportunity for something special and not realizing it. John 12 challenges us to avoid the tragedy of missing out. Bible Knowledge Commentary again says, "...the size of the crowd kept increasing." The news of the great miraculous sign Lazarus raised from the dead spread through the city and other groups surged out to meet Jesus. It was a day of great popular acclaim, but sadly the people had little spiritual perception. They were missing it, even though it was right in front of them. Avoid the tragedy of missing out on relationship over religion relationship with God over religion. We read that some of the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Earlier, the religious leaders were actually panicked because they said, if these people keep following this Jesus, the Romans are going to come, and they're going to take away our position, and they're going to take away our power, and they're going to take away... The temple, just a bunch of religion. Just a bunch of personal influence based on their influence and their their fear that they had created in people. You know, Karl Marx, there's some religions that he wasn't wrong about them being an opiate of the masses. According to Mark 14 says the leaders were actually looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and put him to death. And they said, but not during the feast, or the people may riot. Maybe there was something to him. But they were so stuck on religion that they couldn't see the relationship with God. That, that's kind of the the thing I keep in the back of my mind with all these statistics and things. Okay? Between people calling themselves a Christian, people um, uh, that... that call themselves a Christian, and they're affiliated to a church, but it's almost like they just want to be able to say that's where they belong. I, I don't think they've hit relationship with God yet. So that, that's why, for me, I, I'd rather talk about followers of Christ. I'd rather talk about people that have a relationship with God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit rather than talking about quote-unquote Christians. That's, that's just my thing. The excitement over Jesus was an inconvenience for the plan of the religious leaders. Lastly, we need to avoid the tragedy of missing out on the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you're like, J.D., where does he pop up? Well, he's absent. And that causes what we see in verse 16. The disciples did not understand these things at first. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him. Jesus promised his disciples... Four chapters later, in the upper room, he says in John 16, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It's after the ministry of the Holy Spirit coming to them at Pentecost that they're able to look back and realize all that was going on. You know, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the proof of our salvation. It's not the fact that you prayed a prayer alone. It's not the fact that you got wet head to toe. That is not the assurance of your salvation. That is not the proof of your salvation. It's the indwelling of God himself within you. It's a relationship with God through his Holy Spirit. It's why as I've shared before, Romans 8:16 tells us, God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. That's where assurance of salvation comes from, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he's given as a pledge of our inheritance. The same term is used in a situation like when a man gives his fiance an engagement ring. He gives her a pledge. That they will be in a physically relationship, physically um, together in the bond of marriage one day. The the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance that we will be in God's presence one day. I would never want to follow Christ without the Holy Spirit. I am incapable of holding myself in Christ I, I am incapable of, of the understanding of the knowledge of God without the Holy Spirit. And the night and day difference for the disciples was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and that should be the night and day difference for you between before you were a believer and after you were a believer is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if that's not there, start it up. Okay? Realize um, I'm substituting something else here. You know, you familiar like with blockbuster video? Kids don't know what blockbuster video is, right? Except in Captain Marvel, right? Remember C- Captain Marvel, she crashes into a Blockbuster video store? Do you realize that's the last Blockbuster video store on the planet? You know Netflix? Well, here's the thing. Netflix had the opportunity to buy, I'm sorry, Blockbuster Video had the opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million in the year 2000. You know what Netflix is worth today? $1.5 Blockbuster could have bought it for $50 million. Now, there's one Blockbuster store remaining, and it's just basically a memorial, right? Here's one thing that I read about it. The computer system must be rebooted with a floppy disk that only the general manager knows how to use. The dot matrix printer broke, so employees write out membership cards by hand. And the store's business transactions are backed up on reel to reel tape that can't be replaced because Radio Shack went out of business. <laughs> that's the state of Blockbuster Video that had the opportunity to buy Netflix under 20 years ago. You see, that's what's going on with traditional religious American Christianity. It's like, you know what? It's not worth it anymore sell it off. Just mark this box instead of this box. Just say, "Yeah, you know, love is love." You know what? The but what are you today? Him, her, I don't care. That's 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 they're getting swept up in the absolute nonsense of our culture because they never really grabbed on to a relationship with Christ. And grandparents, I'm sorry to say this, but the nominal Christians are giving birth to the nuns. The nominal Christians are giving birth to the nuns. And at least at least on Easter, we may have the opportunity to reconnect somebody to the truth. You want to help our culture? introduce somebody to the gospel. Take a shot. (laughs) Invite somebody. We've all had missed opportunities. It's very possible that, that you've jumped through all the Christian hoops, but not fallen into a relationship with God by His grace. It's very possible that you're trying to walk the straight and narrow, but doing it all in your own power, without the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. If these people could be missing the the opportunity for a relationship with God, with Jesus, right in front of them, you could be missing out on it after years of sitting in a church chair or after years of going to Bible study. Just thinking, well, at some point it's just going to make its way in, I guess. No, he makes his way in and he remakes house from the inside out. If the indwelling Holy Spirit is something foreign to you, what's there to lose to ask God to make sure you're not missing out on everything? Reach out to him and ask him to let you trust in the person and payment of Jesus. Ask him to forgive you by his grace alone and give you all of himself. I'd love to talk with you about this afterwards. Kurt would love to talk with you about this. I'm sure one of our shepherds, he'll be up front here. Mark, you're in the back corner. Mark would love to talk to you about this. He'll be back there. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Because you know what? You're not an ordinary person. The fact is, there is no ordinary people. C.S. Lewis said it. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, meaning on their way to hell. Or everlasting splendors. On their way to heaven. But there's no ordinary person. All are immortal. And they're going to spend an eternity in hell or an eternity in heaven. And so will you. One or the other. This is how Apostle Paul put it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, we were one of those people in the crowds saying, yay, yay, Jesus, crucify him. But God changes his children. We see in verse 17 and 18 following, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, we were brought into relationship with God and we were brought into relationship with a calling to help others come into relationship with God. That's what we're supposed to do with the fact that there are no such thing as an ordinary person. All are immortal. And we need to embrace our role with them in our lives. Let's bow in prayer.